0: From a long career at Microsoft to chairman of the L.A. Clippers, Steve Ballmer's story is far from complete. It began more than 40 years ago when he was hired by college buddy Bill Gates to become Microsoft's 30th employee. Together, they laid the groundwork for the technological revolution that has completely changed our way of life. Since stepping down as that company's CEO, Ballmer has taken his talents to Los Angeles where he hopes to build a championship organization in the NBA. In this episode of Influencers, Steve Ballmer joins me as we discuss this latest phase of his life and how technology has helped to cushion the blow of the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. And welcome to our guest, Steve Ballmer, the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, founder of USA Facts, and former CEO of Microsoft. Steve, good to see you.
1: Pleasure, Andy. Thanks very much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor.
0: Well, thank you. And so you're all good, sheltering in place. How are things going during this coronavirus for you, Steve?
1: I'd say uh, very fortunate in two regards. Uh, One, uh, our family is safe and healthy. Uh, My friends have been safe and healthy. Uh, One young person we know who was afflicted and one older person, but everybody's fine. So that's good. And since we've been fortunate financially, we're not dealing with many of the terrible issues that folks are dealing with. So, how
0: have you reshifted the focus of some of your endeavors during the coronavirus, and maybe looking to address uh, the disease or its impact on our society and, and economy?
1: Yeah, I would say uh, probably in just in, in a couple or three ways. Uh, USA Facts is this um, organization we started to focus in on government data. And we've been doing that, combining state, local, and federal information uh, on the premise that it's just very hard to see a consolidated look at our government, where the money comes from, where it goes, and the outcomes. Uh, That's not just true for citizens. I think it's also true for government decision makers. And we took that resource and really focused in first on the disease in terms of government data. We only use government data pulling it together and now on data in the recovery. And you could say, okay, well, that's, that's easy. No, that's not easy. We've written software that literally has to go pull uh, county health data together to understand what's going on county by county by county in terms of uh, the virus. And our data is good enough. The uh, CDC uses it and points to it on their website Uh, The uh, President's Coronavirus Task Force has chosen to use it, and it points out the need for decision makers to have broad, national, integrated data, just the way a business person would to, to run. So that's one thing. Our philanthropic activities, we focus on kids and families in need in the United States. And while we normally focus in on things for the future and opportunity, we try to really jump in. Uh, and support emergency relief efforts, whether it's food, housing, the not for profit industry uh, has been one of the hardest hit uh, and maybe one of the least well served by the PPP programs. So we've tried to to jump in there in a in a number of different ways, deploying both uh, grants uh, and uh, who we're, we're about forty million in now in grants and an additional thirty five million in capital. Uh, to try to uh, put up money so that businesses would have more loan resources, uh, Businesses, not-for-profits would have more loan resources against which to pursue PPP. And then lastly, uh, we are uh, an employer. Uh, we have good fortune, so we have kept all of our employees uh, employed. Uh, that's, I think, a very important thing that we are fortunate to be able to do, including at the Clippers, where we haven't exactly had a lot of action, uh, and I recently bought the LA Forum, which is now a concert venue, and we've kept, despite the fact it could be a long time before we're doing concerts again, at least other than drive-ins, um, we've kept uh, kept that staff in, intact.
0: Right, there's a lot to sort of drill down to into those various different buckets that you just discussed, but I wanna ask you about the macro picture here in the United States. Obviously, the pandemic hit and there's been a response. And you've seen different levels of response, different types of responses, and then reaction to that at the federal level and at the state level. State level's interesting. Your state, Washington State, with Governor Inslee, has sort of gone in one direction. Federal government's gone the other direction. What path has made the most sense to you, Steve?
1: Well... All of these things essentially are judgments, tough judgments, between death and misery, I'm afraid. Misery when people lose jobs and, and are hard hit financially, and death obviously from the disease. And that'll be a constant, it'll be a constant thing that people have to look out for. And reasonable people can make different, different choices. Obviously, from USA Facts perspective, we hope they make them well informed with the numbers, what really happened. And do they need to change course? Uh, And those judgments will continue. We don't know whether we'll get a second wave of the disease. Um, I went back into Seattle, and I hope opening up the economy really means what the health officials say, still with social distancing, still with masks. But I think people are going back, if you will, totally to their old lives. At least that's the way it looked. Uh, when I was home in the city yesterday. And I think it'll be very important to continue to to assess in a real-time way. It's a funny thing. The states are responsible for many things uh, from a health perspective and local management, which that's our constitution, perfectly fine. The states are supposed to keep their budgets balanced. But when you look at it in times of crisis, it's an integrated system. The federal, the local, and the state governments, you can't look at them as all separate, which was uh, one of our fundamental promises with USA Facts. What will happen with the economy? I've been surprised to date about the strength of the stock market. That, that's counterintuitive, I'll, I'll say from my perspective, uh, and represents an optimism about speed of recovery that surprises me. I am not an economist. I won't pretend to be an economist. Uh, We only report the past. We don't forecast the future, but depending upon the direction of the disease, we're borrowing a lot of money. We're spending 2 trillion. That's 45% of all tax revenue the government raised last year, in addition to all the other, the federal government, in addition to all of the other expenses it bears. And we still have situations where universities, K through 12 organizations and the you know the uh, state governments support them look in trouble so I'm, i I have uh, reticence about uh, thinking about anything other than a what do they like to call it now U shaped recovery it's hard for me to see any V shapes in our future is
0: there anything else that you can pull out of the USAFACS data that is intriguing or surprises you or is illuminating?
1: Well, yeah, I'll say three things. Number one, now that we need local data, we'd focus first on nationally collected data. It is very hard to get. So making these decisions, let me just give you an example. We're talking about now they're talking about how to distribute data or uh, money to the states. Well, how do you do that? Do you really understand enough about the comparative finances as opposed to this state spends like crazy and this state doesn't? The federal government's going to need to make that decision. And again, reasonable people can disagree, but are people really going to look at the same numbers to dig in? Are those numbers consolidated, even when you get down to the, the local level? What's going on in this uh, metro area or county? What's going on here? So the lack of data. I can't say shocks me, but it continues to surprise me. That's one. No business would do this. Right. Uh, second thing is, what really do things look like in this recovery? I mentioned you know, state finances. But you can say, what's going on with prices? The overall consumer price index is down slightly. And yet, if you look at the staples, the things people really need, what's going on with eggs and bread and food prices, we've had the single business, bi- biggest month-over-month increases in many, many years. An area of focus, because that's where the rubber meets the road right now, which which frankly surprised me. I did not expect to see that kind of buoyancy. I guess it makes sense in a world of supply and demand, but it, it didn't really strike this This citizen, as we were thinking about uh, thinking about the the crisis, if you look at the distribution of the uh, so-called PPP dollars, Paycheck Protection Program, I was surprised to see that North Dakota is number one in the country uh, dollars per capita for PPP. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to see that Texas was the biggest total recipient of PPP dollars because it doesn't have the biggest population. So how we think about this stuff, is the finance, is the banking system, which was chartered essentially for delivering this program, is it working the way decision makers wanted it to work? Dive in, buy the data, take a look. And there's a, a few
0: surprises, if you will. Let's uh, talk about the tech sector a little bit, Steve, and um, your old company, Microsoft, uh, along with the fangs, are certainly performing well during this time. Does that surprise you? And is it a case maybe where they're actually garnering too much market
1: power, given how well they're faring? Well, in answer to the first question, it does not surprise me. The Many of the things that are going on now, uh, we and others, uh, me when I was at Microsoft, we've been talking about for years. We've been talking about virtual meetings. We've talked about remote working. We've talked about digital everything. And all of that now is seeing an acceleration starting with the virtual meeting uh, scenarios and, and what it means to run a business that can uh, without that physical connection. But, and I talked to Satya Nadella who runs Microsoft and he has a nice way of framing. You know, I'm, I'm sitting there myself thinking, wow, this should drive everything to digital. I'll just give you an example. In the communities we serve philanthropically, there are many people who are unbanked. If you are unbanked, how do you get your check, this one-time nice check from the government? It turns out that's, that's a real difficult problem if you're not filing taxes, if, you, if you're uh, paper-based in terms of your financial records. All of these things are complicated. And I'm thinking, this is going to accelerate. I talked to Nadell at Microsoft, and what does he say? They have a concept that they encapsulate now in this word, these words, digital everything, which, which is kind of the modern-day equivalent of, of themes that, that Microsoft and the rest of the tech industry has, has banged on. But I think that'll speed up. Government services that are hard to access electronically, those things will move. Education. I have a college-age son uh, who is a term abroad, and he was sitting here in Whidbey Island, Washington, taking a class at the University of New South Wales for credit at the University of Michigan. And some of the classes have worked out very well online, others haven't, but education, healthcare. Healthcare, we've been talking about telehealth, but it's been something for other people. That's accelerating. So this notion of digital everything, is an enabler for for tech companies to add more value, which is fantastic. Do I think tech companies have more market power? I don't think it changes the market power dynamics and the competitiveness. It just makes the tech industry more important. And I would say that was an inevitable thing. I think being in the software business, uh, business that I was uh, running and still a business in which I keep a a very dear and important financial stake. I think it's a great business, and it will benefit at the expense of some other businesses. Will commercial real estate be as ever be as good a business as it's been in the past? Well, with virtual working, it's possible we will have smaller workspaces. What will happen with commuting and cars and investments that people are making now in new forms of mass transit? Some things could do better. Some things could could do worse. So you can kind of run through things in various industries. The tech sector will benefit. There's just no question about that. Are you
0: surprised that we're sitting here, Steve, using Skype which you helped buy when you were CEO of Microsoft, right? I mean, did you ever envision it was going to be used this way?
1: Well, no. No, if you would asked me when we bought the thing, I think we made our bid in 2011, uh, if we would actually do interviews this way. I thought about working. I thought about people communicating with one another. But the quality of the video and everything else has gotten so good and our inability to do this any other way. But here's the big question back to you, Andy. Will we do these kinds of interviews these ways after things are safer from a health perspective? My bet is yes. Do I I want to fly to New York for for a press interview? Um, No, we can do that in a convenient way that people have built faith in from a quality of experience standpoint, um, so I, you know, I have historically had to drive down to downtown Seattle, park, blah blah blah, or Uber just to be in a studio to do an interview. No, Skype's working just fine for the two of us.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there was reluctance by both parties, I think, to do this kind of thing, and I think we realized that, boy, there's a lot to be gained. It's a lot easier for you. And then from our standpoint, it's a lot easier to get people who might have been reluctant to go to that studio and blah, 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 like you said. Um, hey, let me ask you, what do you think of Satya Nadella?
1: I think uh, the, his record speaks for him, for itself. He's done a great job uh, propelling the company forward. Uh, I'm excited for him. Uh, I got to say, I feel a little warmth in my heart. For me, too, one of the things I had always said was the greatest contribution, the thing that would make me proudest of Microsoft if the company went on to higher heights uh, after I was gone, and I think it's fair to say the company has, from a profit standpoint, uh, industry importance, back to number one in terms of market cap uh, in the world. So. I think in many ways, financial and product uh, innovation, the company has really moved forward uh, very, very nicely. And I'm also kind of proud of the guy. It's always nice when you can have an internal successor. Uh, and uh, you know, I had the privilege of working with Satya for uh, about 24 years uh, before he took over the role. And man, this guy's great.
0: A little bit more about the, the tech business. And right now, you know, they've been under fire from Washington for a while, and you're sort of familiar with that process, being in the crosshairs. Um, and right now, the president is mad at Twitter, and he's mad at the social media platforms, which I guess basically means Twitter, Facebook, and maybe YouTube as well. Um, although I guess he could include LinkedIn, but so far they've avoided it to a great degree, which is owned by Microsoft. What's your take on on that tension between the president and tech?
1: Um, I'll use the president specifically. And I I said this in a a nonpartisan way. It's very important from USA facts perspective. Reasonable people are talking today about what freedom of speech looks like on the internet. That has come in other forms, the Russian hacking. the you know, And how much free speech do you have? And how much responsibility slash authority do the social media companies have to comment? I could tell you right now, I could post certainly on Twitter, there is an earthquake going on in uh, Seattle, Washington. Am I entitled to say that? I don't know, but I can. And it would take a lot of artificial intelligence for the social media platforms to comment about my little tweets' veracity. Should they? I think a lot of people are saying right now they should have better technology to do that. So then when when others speak, whether it's the president or some other uh, person in authority, uh, how do you want to speak to that if? somebody says, you know, or thinks that that has the, you know, the same quality of uh, truth uh, that my saying there's an earthquake. And I'm not trying to equate the two. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, reasonable people will be able to disagree, not about whether there's an earthquake right now. So I don't think it it, it is outside the bounds of what responsibility for accuracy should I be able to speak freely even if I don't speak accurately? Should the president, should um, uh, the speaker, you know, whoever you take, should I be able to speak unfettered? Should the bad guys then also be able to speak unfettered? Should the social media platforms have to decide who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? What's the regulatory environment going to look like? I think that's got to be. That's got to be worked through by government with the the uh, industry because the industry can describe what's possible. government needs to speak for the will of the people, if you will. Uh, and the way this one came about is is interesting, but it ties to the same themes even if it's a a verified a verified uh, person.
0: I mean it sounds like you're not sure what the solution is. And I. to be fair to you, Steve, you're not alone, but but it's not easy, right?
1: Oh, but I, I tell you, I think it, it's easier than people think. This you- is a wild thing. Why do I say that? If, if there can be some kind of negotiation, and I don't mean this in, in the wrong way, if there can be a negotiation between the industry and the government... I think it's better done that way than through legislation. It's better to be worked through by the regulators with the industry, because then you can take on nuance, and the industry can explain what's possible, and the government can push the industry to innovate in certain ways. Things will get better. The artificial intelligence approaches will be applied to specific problems. This is not going to go away overnight. But it is my opinion that right now, the innovation is not being applied in as perfect a way as it could if there was a more clear target. Take, I seem to be switching gears, but I'll say it this way, there is innovation right now in the pharma industry is all targeted clearly on corona. There is a clear priority. That helps focus innovation. And if there were clear priorities in terms of of um, privacy and and uh, appropriate expression, I think the social media companies will innovate in a way that uh, will will really improve the situation quickly.
0: Yeah, and I think I remember you told me that if you had one regret during your time that you would have been at Microsoft more proactive in terms of engaging the government during that during your process, right?
1: Right. I mean, I think we, we felt, I felt, we felt, um, Bill Gates felt that, hey, we've done nothing wrong. We should be left alone. And the truth is, I still would say we did nothing wrong, and yet we should engage with government over the legitimate interests of society. And I think there's a situation like that, even if you say, hey, look, we should be able to do what we did because it is lawful. Right. I think there's a similar issue here. Steve, I was shocked to read, you grew up in the
0: Detroit area, that you were a shy kid? Come That's on, right. How is that possible? I mean, you're sort of the opposite of a shy person now. What, how How is the narrative arc of your life, briefly, speak to that
1: transformation of your character? Well... I'd say my pattern was shy until I got comfortable with people and then less shy. That had been a pattern when I was a younger kid, but new environments, shy. And I'd say I still have some of that in new environments. You know, My first day meeting our basketball team, um, I had nerves, a lot of nerves, but the transformative time for me came uh, in college and in business school. And I'll just give you a short anecdote. I was a football team manager, and I was picked to be the head manager uh, for my junior year in college. And one of the jobs is the, of the manager is to get up in front of 100 football players. You know, the manager is not the most respected position, and you have to get up, yeah, listen up a moment, and then make, make announcements on behalf of the coach. I got comfortable doing that. That was the first comfort. For, for me, um, I got to business school. And I remember the first time I spoke in class, um, I had this piece of knowledge about LIFO accounting versus FIFO because it had impacted the price of Folger's copy when I was at Procter & Gamble. And I, my voice was almost cracking. But then again, the experience in business school got me ready for where I, I was going. And I'd say... Um, I'd say certainly now there are not that many uh, uh, situations in which I'm shy. And final question, Steve. This program's
0: called the Influencers, and I'm wondering how you see using your influence on the world.
1: Well, for me, the I'd say the two two most important ways. Number one, the USA F- facts project that we're working on, getting governments to use data getting voters and citizens to respect data about what has happened. You can't disagree about what's happened. There are numbers. They are produced by the government. If this was a business, that's the basis on which you would publish information to your shareholders. You'd make decisions. I think there's room really to drive an important change in government and in the citizenry. Uh, There are plenty of quotes from Madison, from Moynihan, about everybody's sort of got to be educated about the the facts, to have a democracy. And there is some movement in the government with things like the Data Act to make improvements in this area. Number two at this stage, uh, through our philanthropy, I hope we can make a difference not only in the lives of individual children, but also improving policy, whether it's in the criminal justice space, the juvenile justice space, funding for for universal um Uh, early childhood education, there are a set of things in which I think it's important to make progress that we are excited about. Now, with that said, if you really ask me, where will my biggest influence be? Well, it was in founding, and not founding, but in growing Microsoft from, from a small seed. Bill and Paul started the company. I joined when there were 30 people and two and a half million in revenue. Uh, when I left, I don't know, revenue was 80 million and 25 plus billion of pretext operating profit. But more importantly, we kind of invented the PC and popularized and com- democratized computing. And so I can live with the fact that that may be the biggest influence I ever have, but I get to keep trying in ways that I also think are important and, uh, uh, I'm excited about that. I can't th- say it falls in the influence category, but I'd also like to prove that the underdog can really win basketball champions. Uh, we have been historically not the most respected franchise in the NBA. We've played in the shadow of a, another team in Los Angeles that's done very well. And to, as an influencer, if you will, be able to establish the story of the underdog once again, uh, having uh, all the potential in the world that for me would be exciting. I just don't think it goes on quite the same list as the others.
0: This week, I got a chance to catch up with Steve about the return of the NBA and the Black Lives Matter protests. Let me shift gears, Steve, a little bit and ask you about the Clippers, which you mentioned. Um, What's going on right now with the season? There's obviously a lot of topics in the air right now with the NBA and the players. Where do things stand? with the season?
1: Yeah, there's a plan to reopen the season uh, in Orlando, Florida. Uh, no fans, and if you will, sort of a contained environment to maximize the, the health factors for, uh, for the players and staff who are there. Uh, the goal is to be safer than almost any other environment a player could put themselves in, so safer than the world at large. Uh, that's that's the goal with with lots of testing and uh, other appropriate quarantining and masks. And uh, we're working hard. The league is working hard on that. And uh, hopefully that part works out. Uh, obviously, there's also the the issues of racial injustice that are so much in the news right now. And the league and the NBA Players Association are also, uh, in discussions about how to to elevate those, to to focus on those, and not uh, take our players away uh, from the voices they can have, but to allow them to have maybe even more voice uh, through restarting the season.
0: And I'm sure you've spoken with the players and the coaches, and and where do they stand on on all this? Do so they they want to go back and they want to be a part of the conversation as well, right?
1: Yeah, I think each guy is evaluate, and and we respect, we encourage each of our guys to incur, uh, to to process this, if you will, individually. Individually, they have to decide is are the health factors acceptable to to them and their families, uh, the personal living situation, because there's a long time away from from loved ones. Does that work for them? Does the opportunity to participate in the protests and the racial justice movement that's going on right now, does it all fit? And we respect and honor, and we told our players we respect and honor them figuring that out, and uh, we'll support them in the decisions they make. Let me also ask you about venues. Um, you've talked
0: about having not having live audiences and with concerts. And, and what do you do there? You got this thing now, but so, so what are you going to do with it?
1: Well, it turns out. First step probably is to see if we can reopen with drive-in, some kind of drive-in concerts where people people are in their cars. Uh, we're certainly looking at that. Uh, we look with some curiosity in terms of what's going on, at, what will go on, and is going on at movie theaters. Uh, you know, there's no there's no uh, plan with the public health authorities that would allow us to think about any kind of reopening. Uh, in the near term, Uh, but we're studying what goes on in other kinds of environments, working with the county health department in L.A., and we'll probably try, as I said, some drive-in events to get started.
0: You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time.